0: Episode 79 of the Barnhart Podcast was recorded on April 1st, 2019. It is time for Episode 79 of the Barnhart Podcast, and I'm kind of sick and tired of news... So I tweeted recently on the Super Nerd account that uh, I'm kind of not in the mood for real news anymore. So who has any questions to ask Ann? Let's do an Ask Ann podcast. Ann, did you get any questions by email that you wanted to ask or answer? I should say.
1: Um, nothing jumps. Out, but I get a lot of email, but nothing's jumping out. What do you have?
0: Not well. I mean, some of the some of the responses to that uh, initial question on Twitter weren't the most serious. Somebody said, "Should Catholics use free BSD or Mason jars, or should we use Ball jars?" Do you remember that there was actually something called Ball Mason jars? No, I thought there was. I thought it was the same company. I, I, don't I think so. I definitely remember that we used to can uh, well pickles, actually, but. Uh, It was was either Ball or Mason jars, I forget which, but I could swear that they were actually both, literally both brands were on the same thing, Ball and Mason.
1: Well, that would just completely shatter my entire worldview if Ball and Mason were the same company.
0: I'm pretty sure they were. I'm going to have to get back to that at a later time, but (laughs) I'm kind of surprised you don't know about that, but uh, I I was pretty sure they were, but... I guess we can go with the other questions. Uh, One of the other questions I got is, Anne, are you a vegetarian? If so, do you find that you need to have a hamburger once in a while to maintain sanity?
1: Who in the world? Who in the world is asking if I am a vegetarian? That is just what? 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 (laughs) What?
0: Well, apparently, there this this question. I I did uh, ask the question, or what was going on with this question, and apparently, there was something with uh, people who do a vegetarian fast for, I guess, penitential reasons, and in some cases, this even includes Carmelites. There will become an imbalance in these in the folks who are doing this that they begin to get unbalanced. I guess, for lack of better terms. And they begin to get a little crazy. And to fix this, they are literally prescribed to go have a steak, like a 16-ounce steak or a huge hamburger or two. And that actually fixes them. And I've also heard that some Carmelites, as part of their regime, have to have like a vitamin B12 shot to offset the, the vegetarian diet. I don't yeah, know. that's...
1: That's just what I was going to say because the first thing that pops to my mind is if if you do not have a well-balanced diet as God intended for us to eat um, and you don't eat any meat, you're going to get It seems to me that it would be pretty easy to get into a situation where you had, you know, a deficiency in those nutrients that specifically come from meat, like iron. Um, I think meat is, you know, pretty heavy in zinc. Uh, Iron's the big one that jumps out at me. You could get into all kinds of, um, deficiencies and one of the things that was really interesting that i found fascinating when i was in college and you know we would have to take the various you know farm animal nutrition ruminant nutrition etc cetera, etc cetera. and you take these classes and and a, a huge percentage of the curriculum is going through all of these uh mineral and vitamin deficiencies And then, you know, a lot of times they would say, okay, this is, you know, whatever, vitamin C deficiency. Here's what it looks like in cattle. Here's what they're going, I mean, cattle, vitamin C, that's a bad, that's a bad example. Let's, let's say, for example, calcium deficiency in cattle. If cattle have calcium deficiency, what's one of the symptoms of that? They're they go out in the pasture, and if there are any bones, and there are usually bones around in pastures of not only um, perhaps cattle, farm animals that have died, but more commonly of other types of animals, you know, who who have died and eroded, and you'll see cattle go and they'll chew on bones. If there's any bones around, they'll be chewing on bones. Um, there's other deficiencies where if the cattle have it, you'll see them chewing on, on tree bark. Um, I can't remember what it is. I can't hardly remember any of them. The other thing that that the textbook would often say, or the lecture would say, is, oh, this this mineral deficiency in humans is called X. And you, you'd hear these names of these completely obscure and very old-time me human maladies that hardly just basically don't exist anymore in, you know, the first world, certainly not in the United States. And you say, oh, that's what that was. Oh, that's what that was. Oh, copper deficiency is called that. And, you know, all these crazy names of, you know, these, um, these maladies that people would get. And you know, what's weird as these, as people, one of the things that's now coming back into ascendancy um, and is getting to be kind of the new, I don't, fad, I guess fad is the right word to use for it is that people are, are falling back into these these paradigms where they're falling for these snake oil salesmen and you know fake doctor Chiropractor slash witch doctor people who make all their money perpetrating these frauds, trying to convince people that they're allergic to everything. You're allergic to this. You're allergic to that. Da 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 da. And so what happens is people get into these these food obsessions, and they start cutting things out of their diet to the point where they then start having these completely bizarre, unheard of vitamin, mineral, nutrient deficiencies that haven't been seen in the first world for decades, if not over over a century, in many cases in the United States, certainly. Malnutrition hasn't been much of a problem in the United States for, oh, since since the Great Depression, pretty much. We've, you know, everybody's been well fed, to put it mildly. But now people are voluntarily falling back into this as and what it basically is, is an eating disorder. It is a species of anorexia. It's in fact called orthorexia, where instead of, you know, people telling themselves, oh, I'm fat, I'm fat, I'm fat. I have to lose weight. I can't eat. The new fad thing is, is to tell yourself, oh, I'm allergic, I'm allergic, I'm allergic and people then stop eating. And it's it's exactly the same as anorexia. You're not eating anything. And you get all of the maladies that go along with that up to, to the point where you start having, you know, organ damage. Um, you can do significant damage to your liver to your cardiac tissue from being in a state of malnutrition and basically self inflicted low grade starvation, you hold yourself in a state, uh, you hold yourself in a state of low grade starvation, for years and years and years on end, you're gonna do you're gonna do organ damage to yourself. And eventually, if you take it far enough, you'll end up like Karen Carpenter and you'll just have a heart attack. And Karen Carpenter, I think, was only 32 when her heart gave out. She had done so much damage to her cardiac tissue from starvation and malnutrition. But um, yeah, it's so people, because of this whole thing, and it's also a function of the broad populace falling away from true religion and then trying to fill that and everything that goes along with true religion trying to fill it with these insane pagan witch doctor nonsensical things um but yeah if you if you were and you know there are there are monks and and so forth and some that i even am acquainted with who don't hardly eat any meat at all Certainly not in the house. I think some of them, when they get permission to go out, they also can get permission to eat red meat, and I, I think I think the ones that I know of avail themselves of that opportunity. And you know, if they can if they can get a good stake into into themselves, that they do. But yeah, it's and it doesn't take much, and we all just take it for granted because we have all had the opportunity to eat whatever we want, whenever we want. And what's absolutely fascinating about this to me is the fact that animals like cattle and in my study of animal husbandry, the, the cattle have an innate sense when they have a mineral deficiency, they then go and seek out if they have you know, some sort of a, a metal deficiency or something, One of the problems you'll often see with cattle is they'll go and they'll start chewing on barbed wire and they'll swallow pieces of barbed wire, trying to get whatever that metallic mineral that they are deficient in into their bodies. And of course, needless to say, you've got a cattle, you've got a bovine that's got a big hunk of, uh, you know, a four inch long piece of barbed wire sitting in its rumen. And that's just, that's not good. Um, But the fact that God created not just animals, but also humans exactly the same way with this innate sense of what you're deficient in, and then you crave whatever it is whatever food stuff or anything that it is that'll correct that deficiency so in terms of me i just eat what i want to eat you know if i if i get a hankerin for a great big old piece of salmon Well, I I go eat that because that's my body telling me that maybe I need what's in salmon omega three fatty acids or something like that, you know, if I have a hankering for a great big huge old steak. Well, go, go eat a steak if that's what you're hungry for, because maybe that's your body telling you you're a little low on iron. You need to get some more red meat into you. And with me, the way it usually manifests itself and how I notice it is that um, I'll get a hankering for a big old spinach salad or something like that with me, it's usually I need more greens, I need, you know, more of the nutrients that obviously come from vegetables. And so, you know, or I'll just be sitting around thinking and cannot get broccoli out of my mind for whatever reason. And well, okay, go go buy a head of broccoli and eat some broccoli. If that's what if that's what your body is sending a signal to you, crave that you want to eat that, you should probably do that. And if you you just do that, it seems to me that the system is engineered by God, that you'll stay in a a state of relative balance, and you will get a a well-balanced diet if you have a broad diet, and you're not doing crazy, bizarre things, and you just, just eat what you're hungry for within reason
0: in terms of listening to your body and and eating what your your body is craving the uh semi-sexist slash uh dad of several makes me wonder if this is a female thing that when you have a craving for something that's what you're supposed to eat i'm told that's what pregnant women instinctively uh do and Mm -hmm. you've never been pregnant but yet you talk about how when when you have a a need for some kind of nutrient you just seem to want to crave broccoli or 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 spinach or something like that, is it possibly a female thing? And I ask this as a dumb male who doesn't understand female physiology to that nutritional level. Do you have any insight on that?
1: I th- I think that's probably true. It it doesn't you don't have to be pregnant because I think the female body is driven to maintain optimum uh, an optimum level for fertility, you see. So you know if you're if you're deficient in whatever nutrients or vitamins, the female body is going to send signals to get you so that you're in a state of balance so that you're fertile and I would suspect that's what it is and it, it would be interesting it, it would be interesting if there are any you know physicians out there who are listening who have any insight into this if this happens more frequently with females than males and I Um, I I can't say that I ever remember anything in, um, in my college curriculum about cows being more likely, maybe maybe I do, maybe I do remember them saying that cows were more more likely than steers to, to, you know, go chew on tree bark or whatever to correct mineral imbalances. But yeah, I, I think it's clearly tied to fertility in general.
0: I was going to say something related to that, and now I completely forgot because I was so wrapped up in the analogy of cows to humans that I forgot what I was going to say.
1: Well, (laughs) it's not meant to be insulting, but, you know. I remember now.
0: No, just the whole idea of of, uh, jumping to uh, vegetarianism as a religious thing, it makes me think of in traditional times for the orders that had uh, hermits. Somebody mm-hmm. could not just sign up as a postulant and decide to go be a hermit right away. You had to be a member of the order for like 20 years, 25 years, 30 years before you even qualified to become a hermit. Oh, I yeah. wonder if perhaps the dietary restrictions more traditionally is something you had to grow into so that if you are a you know signing up for a Carmelite, for the first seven years you had to have meat and you didn't qualify for a vegetarian diet until you hit that seven year mark. Is, oh, that, is, yeah. is, is that something that I'm just completely making up based on no, something that makes sense I don't to think me? So. Or
1: I, I think it's, it's a couple of things. I think first and foremost, um, in terms of people being in the order and being completely mature, and I'm so glad you brought this up because this is such a timely topic right now. With um, what's his name, Rod Dreher, and the Benedict option, and all of this talk about you know we just in, just turn our back on the world and run away and go hide somewhere.
0: Well, you called the Benedict option; I call it the ostrich option.
1: There you go. Exactly. And see the risk in that being a hermit is like the one of the most adv- advanced levels, it seems to me, of the spiritual life, you know, being being a human being here on Earth before i um, before you go to your particular judgment, you have to be extraordinarily spiritually mature, sophisticated, whatever whatever word you wanna, wanna use, why? Because if you are not, then this whole business of running off and I'm gonna just hide in my house, this descends almost instantaneously if it isn't brought on in the first place By narcissism, either you're a narcissist to start with and you just want to, you know, go navel gaze and lock yourself in your house, or you you say, Oh, I want to be a hermit, I want to go do that. You lock yourself in your house, and then you get into the habit of just navel gazing and navel gazing and navel gazing, and you turn in on yourself. And if there's nobody else around you, if you are living as a hermit, then what happens? if you're not spiritually mature, then how can you develop charity if you're spiritually immature and you don't have any interaction with any other human beings? If your prayer life is completely weak, non-existent, unsophisticated, narcissistic, whatever, whatever you want to call it. And then, and then you go lock yourself alone in your house. Wait, 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 you, there has to be charity. There has to be in and the, the way you do that in before you die and you go to your particular judgment, we're here in the, in the, in the world, in the church militant. Obviously, the primary way that you that you do that and you develop charity is other human beings. So you have to be an extremely um, advanced in the spiritual life to be able to say, OK, I, I am now able to go ahead and for the duration of my life or for a period of 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, whatever it is, cut myself off from other people and, and that's not going to lead to a reduction in the virtue of charity in my soul. In fact, this is going to be good for me because I am now to the point where I can develop ever-increasing amounts of charity f- towards God, which is ultimately what you know the hermit is going for. Um, well, that in that-
0: battle with Satan. I mean, I think of St. Anthony of the Desert. And the mm. other early Desert Fathers, there are legendary stories of literally doing battle with Satan. Yeah. And these these folks were not self-choosing this battle. I mean, it is a fool's errand to say, I want to go battle Satan, because that's a really easy way to get your butt kicked. It's like walking into a dojo you know, and, and, and uh, picking a fight with a seventh-degree black belt, which I, I realize I made up. It's fifth-degree is typically what it goes to. But this takes a lifetime of preparation even get to the point where you qualify for that absent some kind of singular grace. I mean, St. Mary Magdalene, she lived a life of, of, of um, equivalent of a hermit and it really was hermit actually, mm-hmm. but she had a singular grace. She literally was touched by Christ and, and, and the,
1: and you also know what the pious tradition about Mary Magdalene is, don't you?
0: Uh, which one?
1: She was every night she was assumed into heaven.
0: That one so I did not know. I, yeah. I I had heard that she actually had the the lily of virginity that she that in her in her uh, expiation and and in her hermit uh, lifestyle and, and uh, in her expiation of sin and her sorrow for all of her past life she actually earned a second virginity and so that in her uh, heavenly status she has the the lily of virginity which given her life story is a little yeah. remarkable but that's what. That's what grace can achieve for you. We are we are made new in Christ through grace. And, uh, and she- consider
1: consider the level of penance. I mean, that's the thing that um you know Mary Magdalene today is being co opted by some truly truly deplorable people who uh, kind of in the name of feminism, but also in the sense of cheap grace. I can, I can do whatever I want and I look at me. I'm just like Mary Magdalene, you know, Christ forgave her. I'm forgiven for all my sexual sins as excuse me, Mary Magdalene after confessing her sins to Christ face to face in his incarnation on on this planet, receiving absolution from him directly was still so filled with the spirit of contrition and penance that she ended up living in a cave as a hermitess in the south of France, doing penance. All day long. And so, you know, you have the whole the other Novus Ordo priest confessional thing. Um, don't ever think about any of your sins ever again. They're gone. You've confessed them. Don't ever think about it ever again. Um, excuse me, where's Mary Magdalene in that? Because she went and lived this life of profound, profound contrition and penance to the point that yes, she in fact did receive the Lily of Virginity. And the first time I saw um a painting of the assumption of Mary Magdalene. I was, I was confused. I was like assumption. Well, no, it's the assumption of the, of the Virgin. It's not the assumption of Mary Magdalene. No, 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 no. Pious tradition is, is that she got to the point where she was assumed into heaven every night, but then every day she was still back in the cave that she was living in as a hermitess, doing penance. So, Yeah. So you've got these women today. There's one in particular just makes me absolutely livid and makes me sick. Um, I've mentioned this person by name on the blog, but I I just don't even want to utter these these people's names. But this woman carried on an affair openly with a priest in Rome for years and years and years, had this guy's baby. Just everyone knew it. They were just lying through their teeth. Everyone knew they were lying. They carried on openly. They were seen carrying on romantically all over Rome. Everybody knew what they were up to. And so now, um, you know, he gets he gets. Uh, there's a dossier on him. He gets told, look, you you need to either. you need to pee or get off the pot here. You either have to be a priest or you have to leave and do what you're going to do with your concubine. So he chooses to leave the priesthood and marry this woman who's his concubine. And so now this woman is out all over the internet all the time, Basically going on social media and uh people send me tweets that this woman sends out, she basically uses Twitter to every every once in a while um send out little tweets and and make sure that that she reminds everybody that she's having sex with this with this priest who is considered to be hunky and good looking or whatever. And and then has the nerve, has the unmitigated gall to compare herself to marry Magdalene Mary Magdalene you're carrying on publicly with your priest's husband um if you if you marry your priest baby daddy you need to go away and not cause any more scandal and sure enough more scandal has been caused another priest another priest in Rome and a woman who was acquainted with with this, this woman and the priest that she was having an affair with and and emulated them and thought they were fantastic and aren't they aren't they cool and i want to be just like her she this other woman goes and starts chasing priests and sure enough gets pregnant by one he leaves the priesthood goes back to the states becomes a professor at a at a university in pennsylvania so now this woman the the original one She's now got two wrecked vocations. She's essentially snatched two chalices from Holy Mother Church and has the gall to compare herself to Mary Magdalene. You, hun, you go live in a cave, which you probably should. Go live in a cave and do penance for the rest of your life. And then, then, then we can start having discussions about Mary Magdalene, but you, you leave the Magdalene out of this and out of your degenerate, sickening, disgusting life. It makes me absolutely livid. And this woman, it's funny. I mean, she recently, she and the priest that she married, were just laundered like a hundred grand through notre dame they were given like fellowships no show no work quote unquote fellowships at the notre dame center for ethics i mean just just pour pour the the insult onto the injury why don't you just pour salt on the wound notre dame are we going to talk about notre dame there was something we were going to talk oh maybe maybe we'll get to it at another show notre dame at this point, is a racketeering organization. It is a it is a racketeering front for two things. It's a racketeering front for a NFL farm team, which many of the universities are now. But Notre Dame is the worst, I think. I mean, at least you know the la- the big land grant universities, K State, Nebraska, all of this. Yeah, are they farm teams for the NFL? Absolutely. But they're they're also like functioning, legit. Universities who are doing, you know, actual scientific research, agricultural research, et cetera, et cetera. Nuclear Um,
0: research, too, in the case of nuclear research.
1: Absolutely. Notre Dame is a racketeering front pretending to be Catholic. It's not Catholic. Notre Dame hasn't been Catholic for decades. This is, it's all a scam. So you've got, and it's, and it's, and they launder money to each other. You get into that conservative Catholic neocon upper level mafia which is what it is and it's and they these people hold themselves out as conservative conservative Ordois. why because there's big big money there there's no money in trattyland the the money flying around trattyland relatively speaking is minuscule the big money who has the money so like older Older Catholics, um, successful in business, and then what's the what's the thing that they have? The Legatus Institute or whatever. In order to join the Legatus Institute, you have to send in you know an application, and you have to say. You know, I am the CEO, okay, you're the CEO, how many employees does your does your company have? And what is the, you know, what are the total sales for your company for the year, and they like sort you in to the Legatus Institute based on this. So it's all driven by money. There's huge money flying around because it's older, generally financially successful people, nouveau riche because you know, most people in the US are, are nouveau riche. There are a few people by now that are second, third, even fourth generation money, but not relatively speaking, not, not many, it's not like Europe where there's this old, 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 old inherited money. You know, if you if your money in the United States is four generations old, that's that's ancient for America. Most people are are first, maybe second generation money in the United States. Well, so, in
0: part, in, with Americans, the second generation tended to blow it. So, yeah. if, if it makes it to third or fourth generation, either daddy or granddaddy set it up so you couldn't touch the money and screw it all up, or you got lucky. But it it's I don't think we have any families, not even Rockefellers or Kennedys, really have deep old money like Europeans have.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, these people, these basically, they're basically criminals. I mean, not that whole Legion of Christ, you know my position on that. That is all straight up, hardcore, flat out racketeering. It's criminal. And they've, a lot of those people have looked at the conservative Catholic neocon paradigm and just ka-ching, 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 ka-ching. And man, once you get into that, they're giving each other book deals. And, and so they write or they have books ghosted that nobody ever reads. They do the fraudulent thing where, you know, some some charitable group or think tank will buy 10,000 copies of somebody's book and they'll fake get it put on like the New York Times bestseller list, which is, which is a complete scam. Total, complete scam. So these people get these publishing deals with major publishing houses worth, you know, into the six figures. And for some of them, it's into the seven figures writing books that pretty much nobody reads. Uh, That was the case with um, a what's his name that just got blown out of out of the water as a complete plagiarist, Rosica. He's, he's out of Canada. He's out of Toronto. But they go back. This guy's written or quote unquote written all of these books. People are now pouring over this and seeing that his books are like more than half plagiarized. More than half of the text in any one of, of Rosica's books, darn near, is plagiarized.
0: This sounds and, like uh, Barack Obama's book. I mean, Jack but, Cashel did a, a, a big work on oh, yeah. how Dreams of My Fathers actually came from uh, – from Marshall. I forget the rest of his uh, name. No,
1: it, it was written by um, Bill Ayers. Bill Ayers. Oh,
0: that's right. Bill Ayers. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yep. Written by Bill Ayers. But see, the thing with a lot of these neocon Catholic books, nobody reads them. And so nobody – why wasn't Rosica discovered? Even though he has this huge publishing oof? nobody's reading any of it. Nobody reads those books. All, it's all fake, you know the the book charts are as fake as the music charts. Um, and so they they launder each other money this way. You get a no show, no work quote unquote fellowship at somewhere like Notre Dame, or one of the Jesuit universities, or something like that. It's all a big mafia. It's just all who you know, who you're connected to, you know, whose cocktail parties you get, you get invited to. It's wildly corrupt. It's completely false. And it's, it's absolutely disgusting. You know, people keep saying to me, you know, you need to, Anne, you need to get, you need to get a, a book deal. You need to get into publishing. You know, if I ever put together, I was thinking about this, you know, over the, the past week. And, you know, there's been talk about me putting together books of collected essays. I mean, my oeuvre by now is, is just, is massive. And I could put together multiple books of collected essays, even sorted by subject. At this point, knowing what I know about how corrupt the publishing world is and the publishing industry is, the only way I would do it is if I did one of those completely cheapo um, publishing packages self-publishing packages I would want nothing to do with a major publishing house a major imprint nothing I would just want to be completely straight up um uh, what is what do they call it they they pr- they don't print like a thousand copies of a book it's all printed as print, in real time as its order print on demand that's what it's called print on demand that's the only way. I would ever have any engagement with actual publishing. And yeah, I mean, it's getting easier and easier to do that. I want nothing to do with this corrupt world of nepotism and greasing, you know, greasing each other's palms. It so reminds me of political campaigns and how you know, all these political campaigns, they raise these hundreds of millions, and now for presidential campaigns, billions of dollars. And what do they do? Like if someone runs for Congress, okay, you, you get into that world, you get tied into the de- the Democratic Party or the Republican Party you get inserted into that world you set up a campaign to run for let's say Congress somewhere and what do these people all do okay they're instantly tapped into this this huge money pipeline. Millions of dollars come flooding in. And what do you do? You have your brother-in law set up an LLC um, doing direct mailing or something like that. And you know, you have him in or you have your your wife or your kid or, you know, your best friend sets up a quote unquote, consulting firm. And then they just invoice you for, you know, whatever. a year, $1.5 million a year, whatever it is. And it's just this business of these people invoicing and cross-invoicing each other. And it's just a huge money laundering scam. Just, you know, you're, you're in the club, you're in the mafia, you're in the racketeering organization. Here, we'll grease your palms. You know, so this woman who and her priest husband, like i said they just came off of a one hundred thousand dollar quote unquote fellowship no work no no show basically um at notre dame center for ethics yeah the the priest and the concubine who openly carried on a sexual affair have never apologized for any of the scandal that they caused. Oh, and the priest, you know what he also did? He he teamed up with the concubine's mother, who is an extremely prominent American um, neocon Catholic there, and who had Pope John Paul II's ear. And the priest paired up with, who was base who was the grandmother of his own child and what did they do they went after the whistleblowers against the legionaries of christ and they character assassinated ruthlessly ruthlessly character assassinated all of the people in the 1990s and the 2000s who were desperately trying to blow the whistle on the Legionaries of Christ and Marcel Maciel and all of the sexual abuse that was going on, the, the sexual abuse of children, the sexual abuse of seminarians, the fact that the Legion of Christ is just a ginormous satanic sex cult, all kinds of people were blowing the whistle on this. What were these people doing? Yeah. Hunky hunky TV priest is teamed up with his with his own uh, bastard child's grandmother, and those two are going out and character assassinating the whistleblowers. I mean, talk about trash! Just talk about trash! And yet, who cares if they can get you if they can get you invited to all the right cocktail parties? People in Rome just bow and scrape to these people, bow and scrape. But then as soon as they're out of earshot, everybody hates their guts. Everyone I have talked to without exception, including some of these people's who they consider their closest friends, absolutely loathe and despise these people. The only reason these people have any friends is because of their political connection and their ability to, you know, get people jobs, get people networked into things. And I've had people tell me that, you know, to my face explicitly. Oh yeah, they're absolutely horrible people, but I have to maintain the relationship because you gotta, you've got to know them if you want to operate in Rome. Whatever. Whatever.
0: Well, you mentioned that there's a connection to, to Notre Dame, and I almost made the joke that uh, well, at least it's not a Jesuit university. But after hearing this explication, I've got to wonder which is worse, Notre Dame or a Jesuit university.
1: Um, at this point, I, there's some there's some really awful stuff going on at Notre Dame. But then again, boy, the Jesuits they've been they've been at this for a while. And in fact, let me make a precision. I do not believe that the thing the the monstrosity that is oozing across the surface of the earth calling itself the jesuit order i don't believe that that is is the same um, ontological entity as what was founded by saint ignatius i think you know those the, the original jesuits they were suppressed that all came to an end there was this big pause and then and then this this thing just just rose up out of the ground and it's been nothing but hell out of them since the 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 reforming or the refounding or whatever you would call it so yeah i, I think saint ignatius has nothing to do with any of that
0: it sounds like the the spirit from the or the creature from the spiritual swamp and uh if it, if saint ignatius could return he'd grab his sword and go to work so let's change topics to something a little bit lighter um, how is the kombucha coming in is yours alcoholic or not and is ginger required
1: I don't put ginger in mine no mine I mean alcoholic if there's any alcohol in it it's like it's so it's so negligible I, I mean It better not be. I pour the stuff down my throat all day, every day. And it's absolutely delicious. And what it tastes like is vinegar. That's why I love it so much. Because, you know, I'm a pickle person. I'm a vinegar person. Absolutely. And I mean, that combination of sweet tea and that vinegary tartness is just, oh, it's so good. And I love it. And I've I've experienced I don't want to get graphic, but I, I think by now I've been drinking it long enough and I can report that yes, I think there are positive, very positive um, gastrointestinal benefits to consuming the stuff. So I'm I am very, very pleased. I only wish I could make more.
0: <laughs> I'll take your word for it. I know that that would completely throw me out of keto. And uh, yes, I've gotten back into keto now that Len is going and doing uh, a lot more intermediate fasting. So I saw that question come through and I, I figured it was a pretty good antidote to the way the uh, conversation was going, but I didn't know you would go quite that graphic with it. Um, the next it helps.
1: It helps if you got those problems. That's. Not, I'm just going to leave it at that. It helps if you got those problems.
0: I'll take your word for it and I hope I never have to find out firsthand. <laughs> <laughs> the follow-on question, semi-closer closely related to that, is: What is the first thing you're going to eat or drink when Lent is over?
1: Uh, champagne. <laughs> I've saved up. I've got. I've got the money saved up. It's. Uh, yes, it's planned. I know where I'm going to go, and yes, I'm going to have. I'm going to have a little bit of champagne.
0: Okay, another interesting question, and this could be, and maybe we will bench it to be to uh, come back to it for a whole podcast to itself. But uh, and I mentioned this to you earlier by email, is um, the 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 person says I'd like to hear you and Ann talk about popular music, movies, and TV, podcasts, etc. Where do you draw the line between what's acceptable and what's, what isn't? Uh, trads seem to be all over the place on this stuff. Some are rather Puritan; others are extreme and say Game of Thrones is so cool. Honestly, this is something I've struggled with, and and uh, have time have have a hard time drawing the line. Um, where do you draw the line on music? Um, and entertainment I, in general.
1: I mean, it's it's hard to give a a one sentence definition. Obviously, anything pornographic, which pretty much disqualifies as far as I can tell. Most modern episodic television is now descending into pornographic themes, themes of sexual perversion. There's there's there are sodomites on basically every modern episodic television show. Um I just I just have nothing, nothing to do with that. Um in terms of music, I think Peter Kwasniewski had a piece not too terribly long ago and, and his thesis was, you know, he used to listen to, he listened to pop and rock music back in the day. And how old is he? He's probably 45 or so. So, you know, he's born in the, born in the seventies. Um, and, and, like most of us who were born in the seventies, we also listened to music from before, before we were born. So we're, we're all versed in basically the, the fifties, sixties, seventies, all the way through, um, and his thesis was, I think he men- mentioned percussion specifically, and that you know a, a driving backbeat that came that came to prominence with um, in the tw- in the early twentieth century with jazz, and then into R and B, and then into rock and roll, and so on and so forth. That the that driving percussion is in and of itself spiritually unhealthy to listen to i i don't know about that and you and you made a really good point when we were kind of just very mildly discussing this about percussion and i'll, I'll let you make your own point
0: well i was drawing on uh the the lecture series that father basil nords did on on music and morality and i'll put a link to that in the show notes and he makes the well very obvious and erudite point that uh, any element of music is morally neutral in the same way that any tool is morally neutral. You know, a kitchen knife, you know, a cleaver is great if you're uh, cutting up a pot roast. It's not so great, morally speaking, if you're carving up your neighbor. Um, it, it's how you use the tool, not what the tool is. And then when it comes to percussion and and um, the the baser elements, the, the percussion elements of music, they definitely resonate with the lower nature and sometimes that can be a good thing there's a reason why infantry squads going into battle traditionally had a drum and fife core with them it's because Mm -hmm. that driving rhythm literally would get your heart pumping as well yeah And i cannot remember where in the world i saw this and i really wish i could i wish i had better memory on this um is that at, at certain tempos and i want to say it's like 80 to 120 beats per minute um, the human body will will syncopate and and and, and uh, synthesize or not synthesize it, it will synchronize yeah. with the beat of music yeah. and if the beat is slowly progressing or getting faster your body your your, your whole metabolism will increase to it which if you look at Um, if you are a, a, a historian of, of martial music, please check me on this and tell me if I'm wrong, but the, the music they would play would get progressively faster, the closer you got to troops in combat. Mm -hmm. And the whole point is you are amping up to that point. Well, change topic for a minute and say no longer troops going into combat, but let's say spring break in Florida.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: uh, it's already a situation where people are already intoxicated. They don't necessarily—they're not necessarily wearing as many as much clothes as they ought to. You mm-hmm. have a driving beat that progressively gets faster. The end result is great for the abortion industry.
1: Yeah, well, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said you know that a driving a, a driving percussion, it appeals to the 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 lower instincts and one of the reasons why percussion is absolutely forbidden in the church. And folks I hate to break this to you, but that includes, and there are a lot of you who go to Novus Ordo churches where the music is from a piano piano is explicitly forbidden for use in Catholic liturgy. Why? Because it is a percussion instrument. You say, no, it's not. Uh, Have you ever opened up a piano and looked at the guts of it? What is it? It's hammers hitting strings. I've got to
0: include a link in the show notes uh, to Van Clyburn's interview with NPR. And I I had to jump in at this point. We're talking about uh, piano and percussion. And he made the comment, and I forget who he was being interviewed by with NPR, but it's one of their elite uh, music uh, correspondents. And he refers to piano as the lowest of instruments. And she said, why? And he said, because it's all percussion. And he always wanted to be an opera singer. And his voice, of course, changed at 12, 13, whatever, as boys' voices tend to do. But he had the talent for piano. And he said, it's just a, a percussive instrument. And yes, he became a master of it to the point that the that the Tchaikovsky competition became the Van klyburn com- competition. Yeah. And that was a big deal during, during the, uh, the cold war. I will definitely link that, but he made a point in the NPR interviewer which just shocked by him saying, no, the piano was one of the lower instruments. And it's specifically because of that point, it is a percussion instrument. But and a lot,
1: a lot of, and a lot of people say, "Well, Ann, that's dumb because you have organs in churches and organs and pianos. It's basically the same thing. Absolutely not. Organ yeah, and piano. It's
0: like, it's like lightning and lightning bug. They're almost the same words, but totally different.
1: Totally different. Uh, think of what an organ is—an organ with the pipes and blowing." air through a pipe such that there is a resonance in the pipe that is actually the closest thing to the human voice so they're at opposite ends of the spectrum the piano is a percussion instrument the the organ is as close as you can get to a human voice without it being a human voice and so that's why the default instrument in in liturgy and in churches let's say is the organ um but then there's other there's other traditions for example there are parts of europe northern italy where the lute and the baroque the baroque string instruments are can be used you know there's some beautiful beautiful settings in offertory you know you you can sometimes in europe here um during during an offertory of a of a of a sung mass that there might be a lute and a lutist there. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit different, but it's, it's not forbidden. Pianos are forbidden and pianos are ubiquitous in, in, especially North American Nova Sordo churches um, and it's and they're forbidden the, the business of how how the rule of law has just been thrown out the window not just in in civil society, but it started in the church. You have all these, laws on the books with regards to liturgy that everybody's just saying, oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And, you know, this is another episode, but we're we're dealing with this business of, oh, canon law doesn't matter with the current situation, but we're not going to get into that. That's a that's a whole other can of worms. And if you would like to read more about that, you can go to barnhart.biz. And the last 18 months has been almost nothing but that, but I digress. So, yeah. So, you've got this business of having this percussion and but here's what I'd say about listening to popular music um I certainly listen to to much less popular music and when, when I say popular music I'm not talking about music that's popular right now currently today I haven't listened. I my my listening of of or my window of music, of pop music that I listen to basically ends right at the year 2000 or so. I mean, I, I, I don't think I could name anything beyond 2000, hardly at all.
0: I was just laughing to myself and saying, I have no idea what is even popular anymore anyway, because I want to say Pharrell's um, Happy is one of the latest ones that I know as being popular, and I don't even know how recent that is.
1: Well, the thing about it is is that in those rare opportunities when I have occasion to, you know, listen to and see popular music. And the last occasion that I can specifically think of is um, I wrote about the fact that the this Ariana Grande person who is like the most popular uh, pop music tartlet, by, by a long shot right now, this, this chick is just incredibly popular worldwide. The lyrics to her songs are so filthy. And the reason that I had occasion to look this up is because if you remember, it's been a year and a half, two years ago now, um, some musloid went to one of her concerts. I think it was in the UK and shot the place up and killed a bunch of, killed a bunch of people and so I start looking, and I start looking at this chick's music and looking up what the lyrics were. The lyrics were straight ahead porn. They were pornographic. And and wh- who she appeals to and who, who her target audience is, is young girls, like prepubescent young girls and then teenage girls. So I'm looking up her lyrics and it's porn. And then the other thing that I noticed is that, you know, you've got this popular music. So much of it is tied in with rap, hip hop. And that's just, that's just devoid of any merit at all. Um, Talk about bass, animal, just ridiculousness. You look at the, at this popular music now, and there's nothing, I mean, there's nothing memorable about it. I mean, there are kids out walking the streets, who can sing these songs, but these songs have absolutely no staying power whatsoever. They don't have memorable melodies. It's just, there's nothing there. It's so ephemeral. And it's just this, you know, turnover cycle, you know, every two weeks, there's a new, there's a new completely contrived, fabricated, pop tartlet hit or whatever. But you know, these this music, the music that I grew up listening to was the pop music, mostly of the 50s and 60s, country music of the of the 70s and 80s. What was always on in the car was um, contemporary country music. So I'm born in 76. So as I'm a child, from the mid 70s to the mid 80s, popular country music is what was basically on the radio. But then we had the time life, uh, the time life collections of hits of the fifties and sixties, you know, the albums and we, that's what we would listen to at home is we would listen to those, those album sets. So I knew all of the, all of the pop music of the fifties and sixties, you can sing it. You know all the words. It has staying power. This stuff today has absolutely no staying power at all, and it's it's such a tragedy because you know, even the pop music of the eighties and the and the and the nineties, you know that's part of. My youth and other people of my age—you can say the same thing. Yeah, I remember all those songs of the '80s, and you know, I hear uh, Cindy Lauper. Girls just want to have fun, and I'm right back into you know second grade again. And you can you can remember what those summers were like, and, and et cetera, et cetera. And it just seems to me that this music today is just such ephemeral, just garbage. What are, what are these kids going to have? You cannot tell me. You cannot tell me that thirty years from now, anybody is going to be singing this crap that's being passed off as popular music today. No way. No, and that's not. That isn't just. You know that the classic phenomenon of. People shaking their fists at the, those young kids and da 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 da, da. Uh, That's not what we're talking about. This this is into a whole different plane. What what culture are these kids going to have to look back on to give them happy memories? It just seems it just seems to me that they they're not going to have anything. And it seems to me that that's calculated. That that is a that is a. Calculated thing that they they have nothing to cling to. They're not going to have any culture of their own that they'll even want to defend, you know. So I think it's all part of the calculus. But going back to the initial question, where do you draw the line? Obviously, I mean, there's a pretty clear line in I, I think it's 67 or 68, is when Song lyrics started moving from singing about courtship. Clearly, clearly young people singing about courtship. I want to hold your hand. And even that's the Beatles. And, you know, the Beatles were the beginning of the end. But even that, even the early Beatles stuff is, it's clearly an innocent kind of a singing about courtship. Then in about 67 or 68, it it moves very rapidly into people just singing about fornicating. Just straight up. Um and so well, there any- was
0: there was the rare exception, like Queen doing Bohemian Rhapsody, which I I'm not a, a connoisseur of rock over the edges or popular music, but I, I saw something on YouTube, or maybe it was a TV show, I forget which, talking about the musical achievement of that song. There's like five distinct pieces, and, and yeah. there there is um, episodic development in musically throughout that piece. You've got to have musical education to even understand the significance of that achievement. And this goes... How many people today even understand this? If that song came out today, the the uh, criticism of the time would be more than valid that it's too long of a piece and Mm -hmm. it's there. You can't make a a good soundbite out of it. And yet we look back at this as being a classical achievement. We wish music could get back to it. And that was queen for crying out loud. They're not going to get you to heaven.
1: No. Yeah. I mean, that was Bohemian Rhapsody has movements. It's it's more of a, a classical music type of a structure. And it's so frustrating because of course Freddie Mercury was just a just a a horrible sodomite and died of AIDS and deserved every bit of it for what, for the horrific life that he led. But then I think it's Brian May, who's the lead guitarist. Brian May is literally an astrophysicist there. If you can get on YouTube and watch, um, there's quite a few documentary interviews with the surviving members of Queen and specifically with Brian May. brilliant people you know and a, a, he's a truly talented guitar player it, it for for what it is for what electric guitar is also you know a brilliant guy um so yeah they, these were not these were not trivial um trivial artists in any way the the other person who really frustrates me who could have been so great and just you know Chose the lower path was Prince, who's now dead from you know drug abuse, of course. Um, Prescription
0: a, drug abuse, minor difference.
1: Minor difference, yeah. But you know, killed himself, killed himself with it. Um, was a and was a Jehovah's Witness and completely screwed up. But just a musical savant, an absolute musical savant. And you think what could these people have done if they were producing? Um, you know classical type music and you know just taking that talent that savant level talent and going in a different direction with it what could they have been what it's god-given
0: would- talent i mean yeah. you, if you if you watch the movie amadeus and the the 84 um cinematic cut is better because there's not the nakedness involved in it mm-hmm. as opposed to the director's cut but yeah. it, it it makes the point that mozart is this talent from god and he had this ability that is just beyond human. And God gives that to certain people. And we're going out of limb to say that uh, Prince, I don't know what his real name was. Um, Prince he,
1: Rogers Nelson. He was actually, his name was actually Prince. Okay. Yeah.
0: Prince Rogers Nelson. Yes. Mm-hmm. He he really did have the talent that, yeah. that um, he didn't have the stage presence that Michael Jackson had, but he had the ability to play every single uh, instrument. In fact, there are stories of, of, of him we're we're at at his studio where where he'd have the um the technicians come and set up all all the the uh, microphones and everything and they their deadline was to be done at five PM. Prince comes in at four forty five, double you know, sound checks, everything and says, Okay, fine, see you in the morning. They come in, in the morning, he's cut two albums worth of, of, of material, yeah. all the instruments, all the vocals. He says, Okay, master it, I'll be back at uh, five tonight and and, and finish it. And this this guy, it's like he was just playing music that was already done in his head, the the same that was was uh, ascribed to Mozart. That he just had this prodigious ability to compose. Where is this in modern music?
1: Yeah. And where is I mean, it?
0: Where is it in the uplifting music? I mean, we don't have we don't have traditional uh, style composers anymore. I mean, Lars Martensen is one of the few that I can remember, and I'll I'll put a link to this one. The uh, Omagnum Mysterium, I sent a link out to this to a whole bunch of my friends 10 years ago saying, "What? just without, without Googling it, when do you think this was composed? And I got 13th century, 14th century, 15th uh-huh. century, 1990. But yeah. it, it, it's it's one of these pieces you listen to and it's so transcendent. And you think about what the song is about, Omagnum Mysterium, oh, great mystery. He's talking about the Eucharist. And this isn't even a Catholic, but he captured the essence of it in the music. It's just so magnificent.
1: That's exactly right. And I think the way to think about it, to way to think about someone like Prince is that um how how would you phrase it? Prince and Mozart are definitely analogs. What if Prince had been writing, you know, masses? What what if he lived in a culture where he was not playing electric guitar, but he was, but he was proficient in every orchestral instrument, and could write, you know, orchestral pieces. Could write masses. Could write symphonies. Could write operas. Um, it's just he he was born. You know, nobody's born in the wrong place in the wrong time. He chose to go. Uh, down this horrible contemporary modern worldly path, he could have he could have you know gone to some university and you know studied music or gone to you know the Juilliard School or something like that, and he could have applied himself and his and his God given savant level talents, and he could have been the Mozart of today. And there there are lots of other people running around. There are lots of other people who could be, um, you know, artists like a Raphael, artists like a, a Guido Reni or something like that. It's just that they've chosen not to go and apply their talent to make beautiful paintings, but they go into art and they make, you know, modern garbage, ugly crap, but there are, I mean, there's seven and a half billion people running around on this planet. Are you telling me nobody on this planet can can draw, can paint, can do any of these things, can compose be- beautiful music? Of course there are. It's just that theres they're choosing, sadly, tragically, they're choosing not to do that. They're choosing to do either nothing at all or um, going down a path like Prince, where you were just producing semi-pornographic garbage, and you weren't producing things that were uplifting. You were producing things that drug people down into fornication and into these other sins. It's it's, it's really sad and tragic. Uh, so you have to have, you know, you have to have a nuanced way of looking at these things. It seems to me, and you don't say. Prince was a no talent hack because that that's not true. He no, that was, was Michael Bolton. <laughs> well said. Oh, poor Michael Bolton. Aww. Come on, I had to get the
0: Office Space <laughs> reference in there.
1: You had. That was very good. <laughs> All right. So yes, you cannot. You're 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 just not being credible if you say Prince had no talent. Tr- Prince was a hack. No, 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 no. The truth is, is that he was a completely misapplied, non-applied savant. (laughs) He had that kind of talent. And that's the tragedy. And that's what we have to acknowledge. And that's what we have to hone in on, it seems to me. So back to the original question. Well, okay.
0: So I I do want to interject one thing real quick. And and I don't know if the answer would be yes on this one. But did you ever see the movie uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure?
1: No, I've have never sat through. There's that.
0: only I never saw sat through the whole thing either. There was just one episode where, I guess they go through time and they had a time machine and and they went and collected historical figures and whatnot. But there is this scene where they bring Beethoven from his time to 1990s, um, uh, Valley in California, um, San Fernando Valley, and they're going through some mall and and uh, Beethoven wanders into a music store and encounters a synthesizer and modern instruments. And all of a sudden, he's got the technological tools to take this ability to compose in his head and just transpose it immediately right into music mm-hmm. that didn't exist in his time. And I wonder—the part of me at times wonders—what if Mozart could could have this ability and 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 uh, express it? And it? It it would be amazing. And
1: oh, he'd be that, exactly it, like Prince. He'd have some uh, compound exactly like Paisley Park, and he would have like thousands, tens of thousands of hours of Music that was completely unreleased because he would just go into his recording studio exactly like you said with Prince, and they would just you know leave him in there overnight, and he would lay everything down. He'd play every instrument himself. And someone like Mozart, you know, he was an egomaniac, and he was such a savant that he could play every instrument. And so that's exactly what he would do. And then you know, like Prince, he dies, and they go in, and they're just like, oh my gosh, we could we could release an album. week and it would take us decades to get through this. Yeah.
0: Well and, and I guess part of me wonders, um why can't somebody produce meaningful art these days? But I I guess on the flip side, if somebody was producing, you know, the the classical Mozart type art now, would yeah. it even get surfaced? Would we even recognize it or discover it in the next four hundred years? Because the modern entertainment media is not gonna put this out for publication. That's not what sells.
1: Yeah. And the other thing is, is those people, they can't make a living. So there are people that have that level of talent, but they end up, you know, selling insurance or something. And then music is just something that they do that they have to do on the side as a hobby, because there's no way that they can earn a living. Whereas someone like Mozart, I mean, he was, he was the court composer for, um, Um, The emperor of Austria, you know, so Salieri
0: was, but he was he was uh, he was commissioned by Emperor Joseph for a few different things.
1: And they would get these commissions and, you know, they were, these were well-paid people. Um, And for a reason, just like some of the artists, you know, they were, they were paid big money. And, and someone like Michelangelo, you know, he called the shots. He, you know, he's got the Pope down in Rome who wants him to come down there and do X, Y, and Z. But he's got, you know, people in Florence want him to do this, that, or the other. And he's being pulled in multiple directions. And it, it, some of the, Some of the situations basically turned into bidding wars. Um, And so, but yeah, that just, (laughs) that ain't going to happen. That is not going to happen because there's no mass market. Whereas there was, not only was there, um, you know, the patronage of royal houses, but there was also a popular demand. Um, the thing that it it was interesting when I started learning and I don't know much about opera still, but when you, we start learning about opera, there has been so much opera written that these opera houses, they were debuting brand new operas. Like every week there were, there were new operas being produced and there's a lot of operas that were written, composed, performed for one week and have never been performed since. And some of them, the scores still exist. Some of them, the scores have been completely lost, and it's just gone to the, to the mists of time. But there was just enormous amounts of opera being produced because that was the primary um, means of entertainment, including for the the middle and lower classes. And I think you know the the Amadeus movie kind of uh, shows that at the end, as as Mozart is descending um what is it is it's it's the magic flute i think that is being presented and you see that you know there's chickens running around in the in the aisles of the opera house and the people are singing along and they're clearly lower class people who are who are just there for they paid just a very little amount of money to go um but there was still even then you know, you you can fill an opera house with with the lower classes pretty easily, and it's a matter of okay, it's less money, but it but it's a much it's a bigger audience. So you know that law of averages comes out, and these people could make a living. The musicians could all make a living. Um, the
0: lower class um, audiences, though, that that are mentioned in in the movie Amadeus, and, the, and you're making reference to the the German singspiels or singspiels. Or um, the level of sophistication of those audiences would exceed what the Metropolitan Opera draws today. Yeah. And that's You're just a, right. a function of the the culture we're in. And, oh, goodness. I mean, this last Saturday, I, I I went to the, um, uh, the Metropolitan Opera HD broadcast of, of, um, the Valkyrie. It was the first time I've seen any, any of the Wagner pieces. And I, I am somewhat, I have been somewhat biased from, from the, uh, the lectures of Robert Greenberg on, on the teaching series about Wagner having been perhaps mentally unbalanced and, and uh, whatnot. But it is, it, it's a reason to start learning German. I'll, I'll give it that. It's, <laughs> and I don't mean this in the sense of, of, you know, master race and all that crap. I certainly see where, where people, whether it was the Nazis or the people who condemned that can see where the lines come from the this is German mythology. They're talking about gods and mortals, and um I can see where where somebody who's got some abnormal sense of German nationality is gonna say that yes, we are the descendants of gods and we have the right to rule over people. yeah crap. you haven't read the gospels. but in terms of story structure, it's more advanced than the typical Italian opera, mistaken identity, haha, whatever. Uh-huh. Comic buffa opera. I still think that Puccini is the, is the height of all of opera achievement. And for the op, the professional opera singer, if you disagree with me, let me know, and we'll talk about it. That actually, I, I keep threatening to have my my other podcast at some point, and and uh, that is one of the the, the episodes I want to have because opera is is a big deal to me, and and uh, I I don't don't get to go to enough of it. And it is an art form that comes out of the mass. The it comes from the solemn high mass. It, it It is the, if you could think about the ultimate uh, drama, it is mm. God becoming man and dying for us to save us. Set that to music in a dramatic sense. That is the solemn high mass.
1: Well, and a lot of the Italian fallen woman operas, and there's a lot of them um, are extraordinarily, you know, catholic catechetical um you know she she comes to a bad end and she almost always dies at the end but there's there's always she dies but in with a sense of of a re- repentance redemption it's, and hope you know and some of them have explicitly you know catholic lyrics especially towards the end you know when the fallen woman is repenting obviously so they, they are catechetical. And even though it's a, oh, I'm going to go see an opera about, you know, some prostitute. Well, you know, give it a chance because it, it has, it has a terrible, sad ending. But but also a happy ending too, you know, the kind of the kind of ending that makes you cry. I mean, that's what makes you cry. It isn't just, oh, horrible, nasty whore died and got what she deserved. The reason you're crying in the third act of these Italian fallen woman operas is because of, of the repentance and the turnaround, even though she does die. And, you know, people come and reconcile and da 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 da. And then the person has what we are supposed to be praying for in the fourth glorious mystery the assumption of our lady into heaven the grace of a happy holy provided death and oftentimes that's what those fallen woman operas that's the that's what they're driving toward
0: i still okay well i'll have to ask you which operas you're talking about there in in that sense because i i I think about that what what you're saying and i I still compare it to what i think in my head that Turandot is the uh, the pinnacle achievement of all the opera not just because Puccini's music is so magical and sublime, but because of the storyline itself. It is a microcosm of redemption. Prince Caliph is standing in place of Christ. In a sense, he wins the princess turned up by conquest in the second act, but immediately volunteers because she does not accept the conquest. She, she says, I will not be ruled in that sense. He says, I will lay down my life again if i cannot have you by love and that is the most sublime movement in the entire opera yes the whole you know opening of act 3 with with um, the Nessun dorma that's the one thing most people know from that opera that theme starts at the, in the se- end of the second act where he promises his life to her if she finds out his name and the act the everything that follows is a consequent of that statement in act 3 is the transference of where her heart melts for the, for the love of his willingness to die if, she, if he can't have her love. And you think about Jesus on the cross. He didn't have to die on the cross to, to conquer us by right. The circumcision was all that was necessary. To shed one yeah. drop of blood was all that was necessary. But that wasn't enough for him.
1: Mm-hmm. He
0: wanted to show his love to the very... You know, as Moses says, as is said of Moses saying at the transfiguration, this excess of love. How can mm-hmm. there be an excess of love? It's that you prove beyond a doubt to those who don't want to be convinced that you love. Yes. And that's, that's what's so powerful to me about that opera. It's It, it is so much like the story of redemption that. Prince Caliph is not going to be satisfied with mere conquest. He wants to melt the heart of, of Princess Torandot. And eventually that happens at the end. And that's one of the magic pieces of opera, in my opinion. You've got the unique theme, uh, and, and this is in pretty much all operas, whether it's, um, you know, Wagnerian leitmotif or the, the Italian school, you're going to have a theme for every single character. And Princess Turandot has her definite theme in Turandot, and Caliph has his definite theme, but at the very end when the resolution comes their two themes themes melodically join into one in the same sense that two become one in marriage and it's the resolution of the whole story it, it is so magical so powerful and it's why i can't listen to it when i'm working because i'll never concentrate on trying to work on i listen to the music only but uh it, it's why it's my favorite opera and i just told a whole lot about myself here
1: there you go. Everybody's going to be running to YouTube now to look up. Turn, and actually, YouTube is a really good way. If you've never been to an opera, or if you know you're going to one, you know, go on the Internet, read a summary of the libretto of the story so you kind of know what's going on. And then if you want to, all of these operas are on YouTube with um, with the subtitles. Everything's right there. And now all of the, all of the major opera houses, all of them have – Subtitles projected very nicely, subtly up above the stage, you know, so that you can, it's very easy to be looking at the stage. You've got your line of sight, and then it's very easy to look up, or, you know, depending if you're sitting up in the nosebleeds, you might actually be looking down um, at the subtitles. And don't be intimidated by it. And just the fact that you can read the story before you even go. And watch it on YouTube if you want to before you even go. Um, it really it really enhances the experience. It, I can see how people would have been more intimidated by opera 30, 40 years ago when you just didn't have all of these things at your fingertips. Well,
0: and think about when, when Verdi was publishing all of his operas. Well, I, maybe it wasn't just Verdi. It was when all the operas came out. They would publish the libretto weeks in advance. And it's because knowing the words of the opera didn't tell you the drama. You just, you just knew what the singers were going to sing. And I would not necessarily recommend watching things on YouTube, uh, in terms of getting the, the, uh, action of it. I would say, listen to it. And if you can listen to it without looking at it on YouTube to understand what the musical structure of what's going on, read the libretto, but the magic is when it all comes together. It really is an example of an art form where the synthesis is greater than the, the sum of the parts. It's mm-hmm. not just the singing. It's not just the acting. It's not just the music. It's all of it combined together. It really does perform create something that is, it, it, it's magical in in a way that that modern art, even in cinema, can't come close to. And and one of the worst things I can say about Turandot is the first time I, I I saw it live, the the orchestral the orchestral setting almost sounded cliche it's like this sounds like a 1920s 1930s movie and then i realized this was this was written in the (laughs) 19 teens they were stealing from this uh kind of kind of uh musical production so Mm -hmm. this this was the technicolor multimedia production before there was cinema
1: exactly yep so if we can if we can convert a few people and and get some opera fans Or maybe maybe this uh, podcast will stimulate the extant opera fans who are out there in the audience to to email in, and we can (laughs) maybe super nerd can can start a opera fan blog, or even wouldn't it be fun to have an opera an opera podcast that was like quarterly or something like that? Because you have a friend who's an opera singer, don't you?
0: Um, I would. Be honored if she consider me a friend, yes. Um, I'm an acquaintance with one, yes. But uh, I want to bring this back around to the mass. People who are fans of opera, and I don't consider myself enough of a fan as I should be, I have started learning Italian, and I've just committed to learning German so that I can understand Italian more. When you think about the mass, the traditional mass, and the stupid asinine arguments made against the Latin mass, that it's in a language we don't understand, if it is important to you, you will learn the language.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's it's if you go to mass and I mean you've got a missile how can if you don't have a missile you you have a baby television that you carry around on your person that gives you unfettered access to the sum of human knowledge including including all masses all of the divine office by day, every day, in real time, open up Divinium Officium and just you're off and running. And there it is in um, Latin's on the left and the vernacular, in our case, English is on the right. How, how can you say Oh no, it's completely inaccessible. That's such a disingenuous argument. Just as we were making the point about now how opera is completely accessible to everyone. It's easy to look this stuff up. It's all over the place. It's exactly the same thing with the mass and the liturgy. The people who say it's in Latin is inaccessible, I can't I can't make heads or tails of it. The other thing you need to remember is good grief, I think that by now I believe that English should be reclassified as a, it's technically classified as a Germanic language. I look at German and it it, it might as well be Mandarin Chinese. You can't look at German and make heads or tails of it as an english speaker if you're just starting from scratch which i would be but i you know i just don't want to dedicate the time or the brain cycles to german at all i don't see how it has it would have no application for me really
0: a former coworker of mine was fond of pointing out that when the english language came into being everybody who spoke english and they were nobles all also spoke latin so there's a reason why almost all of our vocabulary comes out of latin but in terms of Learning the language to get the most out of it, whether we're talking about the Latin or whether we're talking about, whether we're talking about opera or we're talking about the mass, you know, Matthew 6, 21, where your, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And if it's important to you, you'll learn it. If you find, if you find the love of your life and she's into, I don't know, flowers, botany, you're going to learn about botany just because you're interested.
1: That's right. So, yeah, it isn't, it isn't hard. You you do want to learn it because it is the language of the church. It is the language of our Roman rite. You want to learn it, and you know, for people who are Byzantine, I I would suppose that they would want to learn Church Slavonic if that's what you know their liturgy is in, and a lot of them do. I've been I've been to Byzantine liturgies where it was in like a, a Ukrainian community. Oh, they're they're all singing every word. Now, granted, I think Ukrainian and Church Slavonic are are pretty close, but they're they're closely related anyway. Um, but yeah, you you learn. And in terms of Latin, you can look at the Latin of the Mass, and they're just gonna be all kinds of cognates jumping off the page at you because as Super Nerd said all of these aristocrats were speaking, the, the educated class could speak Latin and many, many, many of them, including in England, they spoke French. And so that's where the Latin influence really most of it I think came into the English language through French, through through the Normans, through through Normandy and up through there, which is why You look at other, you look at romance languages and you're just like, I can, I can pick words out of this all day long. This makes sense to me. The grammar might be a little bit different, certainly, um, but you, you can see words. You can clearly see words that you recognize. And then when you start learning Spanish or uh, French is, French is a little bit tougher, but Italian, you know, whatever you can, when you get to a certain point of competence, you can then start bluffing and guessing, and you can kind of tell what words in English have a have an Anglo-Saxon root and what words in English have a uh, a Norman or a French root, basically a Latin root. And you can say, okay, let me turn this and such word in English into how it would be said in Spanish. And even if you aren't sure and you're just bluffing and guessing, you're going to be, you're probably going to be right like 80% of the time. And it doesn't take very long to get to that level of competence in one of these romance languages. I think English should, for that reason, be reclassified as a, um, as a, Germanic romance language. I think you put both of them together because it's, and frankly, it's I think at this point, it's more than half. I think it's more romance than it is German at this point, but you know, that's just me. I we'll we'll it, save I, that. For I I think
0: it's more degraded than anything else. It, it's, I think it's the language that, that, um, it self-destructs faster than any other in terms of the drift of the meaning of the language. I mean, in in the mm-hmm. 150 years of the Constitution, 170 years, we've gone yeah. from saying from phrases like "to regulate commerce" meaning to make free, to meaning exactly the opposite because our language has moved that fast. But yeah. that's a commentary for another time. I think for this podcast, the Fat Lady has sung. We should probably do the wrap up.
1: <laughs> well said. All right, go ahead.
0: The email address for this podcast, where you can send feedback, comments, suggestions. Aria lyrics or anything else you want to send to podcast at barnhart.biz. Masses for ends benefactors are said yesterday, today, tomorrow, every single day, and once a week, every single week. A requiem mass for everybody who has died the previous week. Please pray for these priests; they need our prayers more than we can imagine, and uh, it, it, it helps the spiritual economy of everybody who's listening, everybody on earth. Uh, the Barnhart Podcast is a production of Super Nerd Media. If you found something of value in this or previous episodes and would like to return some value, please visit supernerdmedia.com for more details, which is what Brian, Camille, Richard, uh, Donald, and they all did that via PayPal and then via the, the mailbox. It was the last episode, but this is special by heart. So I'm going to repeat it. Richard sent something for uh, the sisters who cared for St. Tiny Princess. If you want to, again, if you want to send donations, supernerdmedia.com supernerdmedia.com for more information. And don't forget that Anne's donations and my donations are totally separate. So treat those accordingly. Uh, Matthew 1720, I'll let you do that one.
1: Matthew 1720, full fast, twice a week, the intention being that that anti-Pope Bergoglio be publicly recognized and removed, and the whole anti-papacy be nullified, that Pope Benedict be publicly recognized as having been the one and only living Pope since April of 2005, that Bergoglio repent, revert to Catholicism, die in a state of grace, and someday achieve the beatific vision, and that likewise Pope Benedict repent, die in a state of grace, and achieve the beatific vision nothing less will do our lady undoer of knots um she's on the case and then who are other very important saints saint bernard um blessed charles of austria and his wife zita who is also a who is servant of god zita um saint catherine of siena saint vincent ferrer and just, you know, enjoin anyone that you possibly can. Saint Peter, Damien, obviously Saint Peter, Saint Peter, Saint Peter the Apostle, um, your patron saints, your name saints, your any anyone you can think of, Saint Tiny Princess, everybody. Pray, 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 pray.
0: Indeed. And until next time, I am Super Nerd.
1: And I am Anne. Thanks, guys. God bless.